It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to the broadcast. It's Friday, which means you've got questions, we've got answers. I've done something a little different today. I solicited questions on specific verses or questions about Hebrew and Greek. I solicited these on social media and I'm going to be responding to these. So won't be taking your calls today. I think you're going to find this edifying, insightful, and I'm going to try to unpack some of these in more depth, get into a little bit more depth, take some time with these questions, give you a little more background. All right. So let's start with this one from Ruben on Twitter. In John 4.22, if Christ were speaking Hebrew, would he have been basically saying Yeshua is of the Jews, right? Salvation is of the Jews. How would it have sounded different? Also, Isaiah 12, to a prophet, is, is that a prophecy of his name? Trying to see how close the salvation and the name Jesus are linked. Okay, the short answer, the noun salvation, Yeshua in Hebrew, is closely linked to the name Yeshua, but they are two distinct different words. One, a proper noun, the name of Jesus. The other, simply a common noun the word salvation. But the point of the matter is, to any Hebrew speaker in the ancient world, the words are quite clearly different. Quite clearly. Now, let me explain this to you. When I was studying Arabic years ago, I had three years of classical Arabic. Arabic preserves a number of sounds that would have originally been part of Hebrew and part of ancient Semitic languages but are not pronounced in modern Hebrew today, unless you happen to come from a particular part of the Middle East where those sounds are preserved. Otherwise, those sounds are not preserved in modern Hebrew, but in ancient Hebrew, they would have been. So for example, in Hebrew, you have one letter in ayin, but originally it preserved two different sounds, ayin and chayin. Chayin is not the exact right pronunciation, but as close as I can come because I didn't grow up speaking Arabic or an ancient Semitic language. So we know that an ancient reader, when they would see that ayin, would know by context when it was ayin and when it was ayin. So for example, the city that we call Aza in Hebrew in the Septuagint is Gaza. And in English, Gaza, and we speak of the Gaza Strip today, why is that? Well, originally in Hebrew, that was a ayin, so Gaza. And the closest you had in Greek to that or in English would be a just sound. So Gaza. So when you as an English speaker look at the word garage, it doesn't strike you that you are looking at two different G's, does it? A G for ga and a G for ja. Garage, right? Two different G sounds, but you read it in context, you know how. Or take the word circus doesn't dawn on you that there's a soft C and a hard C because you're used to it. If you're just learning English, you might say Kirkus, right? Or Circus, but most likely Kirkus. 
Because what's the difference between the C circus at the beginning and the S at the end? Huh? You're New English speakers. Like, how do you even know this? It's, you grow up with it, it's just normal to you, right? Or how about the pronunciation of TH? Thank you. Th, th, thank you. This, thank you. Th, this, th. Two different sounds for TH, th and the. But we just do it naturally. We don't even realize it. So in ancient Hebrew, you would have the letter chet. And in some cases, it could stand for huh. And some cases, it could stand for huh. You'd say, I, I, I don't distinguish the difference between them. Well, you have huh, right? Just an H, huh. Then you have huh. Then you have huh. All right. So the, the letter chet in Hebrew today, a modern Hebrew speaker just says huh. But an ancient Hebrew speaker would have known in some contexts it's huh. And in some contexts, it's huh. They're a softer and a harder. Now, when I was learning Arabic, uh, so I was used to, to somewhat to Hebrew pronunciation. Now I'm learning Arabic and you have these different sounds that you don't have in Hebrew, but originally you did. And the reason I bring all this up, you say, what in the world does this have to do with the initial question? The reason I bring all this up, because in my year, there was very little to distinguish ha and ha, the, the, ha, the hard ha and the ha, the soft ha, very little to distinguish them, to be perfectly honest. But when I was reading a text one time to some native Arab speakers, they got totally confused because I, I muddled the pronunciation of those two. That was absolutely clear that there was a difference. And their ear is a total difference, just like the difference between thank you, the, and this, the. If, if y'all say to a German, you know, thanks, and they go, thanks. No, 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 the, thank, thanks. Because they, they don't have that the sound to them. So in our ears, it jumps at us. It's very, very clear. So the point is, to a Hebrew speaker, they would not confuse the noun Yeshua with the name Yeshua. They are related, but you would absolutely not confuse them. The spelling, <laughs> excuse me, is different, all right? And the pronunciation is different enough. So no, Isaiah 12, speaking of salvation coming, is not a prophecy of the name of Jesus. It is simply Yeshua, salvation, and his name, Yeshua. So different emphasis in terms of accent, different vowels, different spelling. So to an ancient Hebrew speaker, there would have been no confusion whatsoever. If Jesus was speaking in Hebrew versus Aramaic in John 4.22, he would not have been saying Jesus is of the Jews. Yeshua is of the Jews, no, rather Yeshua. So they are related, but clearly different. And to any native speaker, it would be as clear as day. Got it? All right. Let's see. Let me scroll up on my screen. Philip, would you say Thaos is the Greek equivalent to Elohim and the Greek word Kyrios is equivalent to Adonai? Jesus is called Lord more often than Thaos, but I believe that it is a bigger title based on Septuagint. All right, first, let me explain what Philip is saying there. Thaos is the Greek way of saying God. Elohim is the Hebrew way of saying God. They are equivalent when being spoken of the God or a specific God. But Elohim can also refer to many gods. Thaos, you would have to change into the plural. 
So the Hebrew Elohim can refer to gods like the gods of the nations, the idols, the false gods they worship, or it can refer to Ha Elohim, the God, the one true God. Those would be the primary meanings of the word. The Os is always referring to a single deity, so the true God or a God of some kind. So equivalent, but not 100% exact. The Greek word Kyrios or Kyrios, Lord, is that equivalent to Adonai? Yes, or simply to Adon, which is Lord or Master or even Sir. So those would be equivalent. Jesus is primarily called Lord in the New Testament. And you're absolutely right, Philip. You must understand this in light of the Septuagint usage. So the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, completed a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, over 6,000 times when it saw Yahweh, the name of the Lord, or however the name was originally pronounced, Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, yud heh vav however it was originally pronounced, I believe Yahweh is, is our best understanding. I reject the idea that it was originally Yehovah or Yehovah, but put that aside. Either way, nothing to divide over. But over 6,000 times, by the time of the New Testament, it was translated as Kurios, Lord, 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 Lord. So whenever you saw the divine name, Yahweh, it would be Lord. It would be Kurios. It would be Kurios. Now it is Kurios Jesus, Lord Jesus. Yes, that is of great significance. Now, it becomes even more significant when you realize that the attributes of the one eternal God are given to Jesus, or prophecies about the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh, Kyrios in Greek, that those are now directly applied to Yeshua. For example, Philippians 2, where it says, every knee will bow to him, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So notice Jesus as Lord, that's the emphasis. The Father as God, that's the emphasis. The Father is Lord, Jesus is God. But there's the New Testament emphasis that primarily speaks of God as the Father and primarily speaks of the Lord as Jesus, the Son. But here's the point. That statement that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that comes from Philippians, excuse me, that comes from Isaiah 45. Philippians 2, Paul is quoting Isaiah 45 that says, every knee will bow to Yahweh. Every tongue will confess to him. Here, that is applied to Jesus, Yeshua, in the New Testament. That is tremendously significant. Not only so, we see, for example, in the book of Revelation, that Almighty God is referred to as the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, or in Hebrew, the Aleph and the Tav, the A and the Z. And yet Jesus, at the end of Revelation, is referred to as the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. If he is a created being, as Jehovah's Witnesses argue, and as other cults and false religionists argue, if the Son of God is a created being, then he, under no circumstances, can say, I am the first and the last, I am the beginning and the end, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He cannot say that. Only the Eternal One can say that. If he says it, it means that he is the Eternal One. So when Jesus is repeatedly called Lord in the New Testament, that is of great significance especially to Greek speakers who had the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, to use, especially to Greek Jews who were more fluent in Greek than in Hebrew or Aramaic. Every time they heard, Lord, 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 it would bring that immediate association with the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, with Yahweh, the Eternal One. So calling him Lord is a great significance. Confessing him as Lord is not just saying, yes, sir, 
Yes, sir. It's more than that. It's more than that. It is recognizing him as the only savior and the only king and the only one to whom we bow down and in bowing down to him that brings glory to God the Father. All right, we've got more questions for you, getting into a little bit more depth on this Friday broadcast of The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. Remember, if you haven't ordered yet, get our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. We are shipping already. It's not officially out till March 19th, but we are shipping already. Craig Keener and yours truly, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. And when you order the book, we're going to send you a link to the download of our interview. You can download the interview that I did with Professor Keener as we discussed the subject, talked about our own history of beliefs. Again, not to divide, not to demean those who differ, but to lay out the scriptures as best as we understand them. All right, we will be right back. I know you're not going anywhere. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. Hey, can I just make a quick appeal to you? We are in a battle right now with YouTube. They have demonetized our entire video channel of 1,600 videos. We are pushing back, meaning that that we cannot bring in any ad revenue. You see a five-second ad at the beginning of a video. If they play hundreds of thousands of times or millions of times, that actually generates money that we use for ministry. Uh, every week, we live by faith here in our ministry. There's nothing guaranteed. There's no money sitting in the bank from, from rich supporters. We do what we do by faith. So when you can get some income coming in via YouTube, as people watch, uh, that's a great blessing to us. Obviously, we want to get the message out, but that's a blessing. Uh, there are reasons for doing it completely bogus. There's no substance to it. Uh, they've been very poor in responding as we've pushed back and, and tried to get them to just explain what's going on and, and why. Uh, but we could use your help right now. It would be a blessing if you stood with us right now. The best way to do it is just go to my website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org, and click donate. Help us with a one-time donation. Stand with us, whether it's $5 or $5,000 every dollar counts and really helps us. We are here to serve you. We are here to minister to you. We are here to bless you and help you and strengthen you. We are here to be your voice of moral clarity, moral sanity, and spiritual clarity in the midst of a society and chaos of church all too often in compromise. We are here to be your voice of moral, spiritual, and cultural revolution, not moral, spiritual, and cultural capitulation. We are here to equip you, to help you. We're not here for ourselves. We do these broadcasts with joy and with honor but for you to bless you, help you. We put the videos on YouTube to bless you and help you. But when YouTube acts unethically towards us, we would really appreciate if you could stand with us, help make up the, the lack and even push us forward so that we could, we could really move into other things that are on our hearts to do with your help, with your aid. All right, <clears throat> back to questions that have been posted in particular here on Twitter. I've asked for questions on specific verses or Hebrew or Greek questions. So here is, uh, uh, how is this? U of A for life. All right, that's the Twitter handle. Uh, writes this. Why do you think that the church today can't see that the Torah is still in play today? As it states in Revelation 12, 17 and 12, 14, Torah equals all God's 613 commandments. Um, 
My brother, I, I strongly beg to differ with you there. The Sinai Covenant is not binding on all believers today, and it was never intended to be so. The Sinai Covenant was intended to bring us to the Messianic era, to bring us to the inbreaking of the kingdom with the Messiah when he would then initiate a new and better covenant. You say, yeah, but Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 12, 14 speak of those who obey God's commands. Yes, but why do you assume that that means the 613 commands of the Torah? How, how about the commands that Jesus gives us afresh in the New Testament? How about the, the other commands and exhortations that are found throughout the New Testament? Why are you assuming that it's all 613 commandments? For example, we know that we are not commanded, even as Jewish followers of Jesus, we are not commanded to offer blood sacrifices anymore for our sins. We're not commanded to do that since Jesus died once and for all. We know that he is serving as a high priest instead of an ironic high priest right now. And Hebrews 7 says that means a change in the law. So there have been changes because the first part was finished, reached its mission, reached its goal, exposed universal sinfulness of Jew and Gentile, uh, uh, laid out the justification by faith, was taught in in, in the Torah, laid out our need for blood atonement, laid out all those fundamental things, played its role. Now, because we failed, the Jewish people failed, God gave us a new and better covenant, and that's what we're under. For example, you'll find, if you go through John's gospel, every time you'll see the word entele, so the Greek word for commandment there, every time you see that, you will see it refers to the teachings of Jesus. When he says, keep my commands, keep my commands, he's talking about the commands that he has given himself. And, and I would guarantee you that there are many commands in the Torah that you don't live by. And, you know, I could list them one after another after another. Do you believe that there should be a death penalty for someone who doesn't keep the Sabbath? Do we burn a, a sorcerer or a witch alive? Do we stone people who commit adultery? We stone disobedient, rebellious children. You say, well, no, no, the punishment is changed. Oh, well, if anything's changed, then it's changed. If anything's changed, then it's changed. When Paul quotes from, from Deuteronomy, 1 Corinthians 5, you must purge the evil from your midst, which occurs repeatedly in Deuteronomy, which can refer to the death penalty or cutting someone off for the community, pushing them out. Uh, but but it, it often refers to putting someone to death. Paul's just using it in terms of excommunication. All right, so... We are not annulling or abolishing. We're saying that the Sinai covenant had its role to play. It played that role. And now the righteous requirements of the law are written on all of our hearts to keep and to obey. And Paul explicitly warns in Colossians 2, warns Gentile believers to not let anyone put pressure on them regarding Sabbath observance and things like that. And, and again, we could go through purity laws. I could show you how, how you're not keeping those. And then if you sat down with a religious Jew who's going to give you what he believes is the understanding of verse after verse after verse after verse, you would recognize, okay, there's a lot here that we're not keeping. Every word of the law is relevant. Every word of God's Torah, all the five books of Moses and the specific laws within them and the specific Sinai covenant within the five books, every word is relevant. Every word we learn from, every word teaches us about God and his ways. But that doesn't mean that every word is applicable to us today. All right, we don't throw away the first, we build on the first and we learn from and we grow and we go forward. I would say without question that it is a slippery slope to say that all 
believers, all followers of Jesus are obligated to keep the commands of the Torah. And this is exactly what the Galatians were told. You said, no, 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 they were told for salvation. This is not just for salvation. This is for sanctification and growth. I would say then, then why when Paul is writing to say idol worshipers from Corinth who've now come, uh, or say in Thessalonica, who've now come to faith, why doesn't he lay these things on them? No, he gives them fresh teaching and you know, tells the Ephesians, don't steal and tells the Thessalonians, don't commit adultery. He could have just said, hey, you know, it's in the law. Just live by that. No, they didn't know what was in the law. He had some Gentile God-fearers who were in the synagogues when Paul preached, but the vast majority of his converts over the years were outside the synagogue. All right, and, and, and idol-worshiping Gentiles, that's, that's what he writes to the Thessalonians about. How wonderful that you turn from worshiping idols to worship the one true God. So we learn from everything in the Hebrew Scriptures. We apply that which is applicable. We build on it. We don't abolish. We see it as fulfilled. And we build on what came before with respect and honor for it. You know, you have people now, they're going to discover what tribe of, of Israel they're actually from and try to find a Jewish identity that wasn't there and so on and so forth. I've watched people actually completely apostatize and fall away from Yeshua. So I rejoice in the goodness of all of God's laws, but I do not wrongly apply them and say that all Christians today are under the Sinai covenant. All right. <clears throat> Giuseppe. Also on Twitter, ask this, what does the prohibition against taking life, the fifth commandment Catholic, sixth commandment Jewish, mean in the Hebrew, and what does this translation mean in practice? Okay, we are most familiar with the fifth or sixth commandment, depending on numbering. It's all the same commandments. When people say, well, numbering is different, it's all the same commandments, okay? So, what, what do we understand it to mean when it says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, uh, the Hebrew is lotirtzach. So if you've read it in the King James, well, that's how you've heard it quoted colloquially, thou shalt not kill. What does that mean? We just heard a reference in Twitter to taking life. What does that mean? Thou shalt not kill. Does that mean kill an animal? Does that mean kill someone in war? Does that mean if someone's trying to kill you that you can't use self-defense and kill them? Does that mean no death penalty? Well, that's not the right translation. The Hebrew ratzach is not kill. The Hebrew harag is kill. The Hebrew ratzach is murder, all right? So all translations, including New King James, uh, all translations recognize that, modern translations, and they rightly translate with do not murder. All right. Now the, the, um, uh, the, there are translation precedents before that, that could go in that direction. The Septuagint could potentially go in the direction of kill rather than murder. All right. Uh, but, but in, in point of fact, uh, there is no question, uh, that the Hebrew Ratzach means murder. So murder is uh, taking an innocent life. Murder is not fighting in a war that you have some uh, barbarians in the ancient world coming in, savage hordes to destroy you, and they come to attack and they come to kill and they come to decimate and you fight back and kill them. No, that's not murder. And in the Bible, the death penalty is not murder. The death penalty is a legitimate punishment, say, for taking someone's life, you forfeit your own life. It has nothing to do with killing animals. In fact, the word ratzach, murder, wouldn't be used with regard to an animal. 
because you can only murder a human being. Just like in, in English, we wouldn't say someone murdered the cat or someone murdered the dog. No, they killed the dog. They killed the cat. Someone murdered my neighbor. All right. Different word would be used. So exact same thing in Hebrew. It means murder. When you understand that, that's taking of an innocent life. Again, not murder. If someone tries to kill you and your family and you fight back in self-defense, you didn't murder the person, you killed the person trying to murder you. Same way someone dies on death row for, for killing 10 innocent people, says, I did it just because I hated them and decided I was going to do it. Well, you put the murderer to death. You don't murder the murderer, you put the murderer to death. In the same way, the Bible speaks of God killing, of God giving life and taking life, but it never calls God a murderer because that is taking an innocent life. Right back with more of your questions. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right. It's Friday. You've got questions. We've got answers. But I am going to give you a special advance preview. I've been posting the last several days, what, six, seven, eight days, the top 10 reasons that Professor Craig Keener and I do not believe in a pre-tribulation rapture uh, leading up to the release of our book next week. You can order on our website. We'll ship it right now. Not afraid of the Antichrist, why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. It's not a divisive book. It's not an attacking book. We honor our brothers and sisters, our friends, our colleagues who do believe in a pre-trib rapture. We love them and respect them in the Lord, but we read the Bible differently, as most of the church has through history, and much of the church still does to this day. In fact, the pre-trib rapture was really unheard of before the 1830s, and those who have really studied what church leaders have said through the centuries can verify that. In any case, in any case, our, our goal is not to divide or upset people, but rather look at what scripture says and help us have an attitude of readiness and faith in, in God's grace that we are overcomers. We are more than conquerors in Jesus. And, and along with that, to know that if God's wrath is poured out on the earth, he can shelter us and keep us. Someone said, yeah, yeah. But when he kept the Israelites, they were all in one place. Oh, so God couldn't keep us. God's unable to shelter his people if they're scattered around the world. Now, sorry, I don't agree with that. All right, before I get back to some questions that have been posted on Twitter and Facebook, some questions about specific verses or Hebrew or Greek words, what I want to do is give you all 10 reasons. So we haven't gotten through all of these online, but these are short. It's not meant to be big proofs, not meant to be big proofs, just our summary. Reason number 10, so we go in reverse order. The doctrine of the second coming of Jesus, separated into two distinct parts that were seven years apart, was unknown through church history for at least the first 1,830 years. Number nine, the chronology of 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 2, 4 makes clear that believers receive rest from suffering only at Jesus' coming to gather his people, which must be preceded by the man of lawlessness. Number eight. The, uh, our hope is in the Lord's glorious appearing, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Titus 2, 13, Hebrews 9, 28, 1 John 3, 2. Not a hidden secret rapture. And reason number uh, seven, the wrath from which we are saved 
1 Thessalonians 1, 10, 5, 9 is eternal judgment, Romans 5, 9, not simply a final generation's tribulation. All right, reason number six, the Old Testament gives us clear examples of the Lord keeping his people safe while his judgments are poured out. Well, Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21, urges us to take refuge when the Lord pours out his end time wrath. Reason number five, in context, every passage that speaks of Jesus's imminent return refers to his return after the final tribulation. For example, 2 Peter 3, 10. Reason number five, no, four. Yeah, the same Greek vocabulary used to describe the rapture is the identical vocabulary used to describe the second coming, including words that speak of a physical arrival, a public appearing, a shining forth, and a revelation. Reason number three, no biblical text explicitly mentions any coming or gathering before the tribulation, whereas various biblical texts explicitly mention both after the tribulation. Reason number two, we are promised tribulation in this world, but in Jesus, always with victory. John 16, 33, Acts 14, 22, Revelation 1, 9. Number one, no biblical passage explicitly distinguishes the rapture from the second coming. That's just our little rundown. Get the book when you order it on our website. You'll also get a link to download the audio of our interview that Craig and I did on this past Monday. Okay, back to your Twitter questions. Let's see here. Okay, Michael, in what way does the context of John 12 apply to John 6, in particular verses 36 to 44? Can the same method of exegesis used in that explanation be applied to any other doctrinal issue? So here's the point. John 12, verse 32 Jesus is stating that if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. In John 6, Jesus explains no one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him. And a Calvinist would say no one comes to the Lord unless God draws him, and he doesn't draw everybody. He just draws his elect. In contrast, in contrast, I would respond with John 12, 32 and say that since Jesus has been lifted up on the cross, he has been drawing all men to himself. You say, well, but, but the context of John 12 is different. They're, they're Greek Jews. They want to they, they meet Jesus, and he's explaining about being glorified and so on. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand all that. Now is the judgment of this world, he says in verse 31 of John 12. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and as I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was about to die. Now, here's, here's the point. Point simply is this. The contexts are different, but I believe the truths are related truths. That all I have to do when I'm examining a passage and I see similar words used, similar concepts raised, I have to say, okay, is this making a general statement that I can apply from one context to another? Is this specific only to this context? I believe that John 12, 32 is something that is a larger statement being made and that can easily be applied to the statement in John 6. After all, it is the same writer. It's John writing. And after all, it's the same vocabulary that he uses. That's, that's very big. That's major. Same author using vocabulary that is not the most common vocabulary. So, for example, 
I'll just look now. I'll go to to uh, to John chapter twelve. All right. I'll just do this as a little uh, little teachable lesson here. I'll go to John twelve thirty two. I'll scroll down to the Greek, and I will look for the word for draw. Okay, and I I see it there in Greek elko, and now I'm going to click on it, and I'm going to search for this word and see where it occurs throughout the the Bible. And now I'll go over to John. In the New Testament, this verb occurs one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. Is that correct? I believe eight times total. Five times in John, and then Acts 16, 19, when it talks about drawing Paul and Silas, you know, dragging them into the marketplace. Uh, Acts 21, uh, where they drag Paul out of the temple. Uh, James, Jacob, the, the second chapter talking about how the rich drag the poor all right drag them into the courts and then we have john 6 44 so no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him where's the next time it occurs in john's gospel john 12 32 when i'm lifted up from the earth i'll draw all people to myself john 18 10 it says there simon peter having a sword drew it so he drew out his sword that's unrelated John 21, 6, where they draw fish, drag them into the net. And the same in, in John 21, 11, drawing in fish, pulling them into the net. So the only context then in John's gospel uh, that is using draw in terms of drawing people is John 6, 44 and John 12, 32. And in the entire New Testament, the only time these two uh, these, this verb is used to talk about drawing people to salvation. O- otherwise, it's used for drawing out a sword, drawing fish. So drawing your sword, dragging in nets with fish, dragging people uh, before magistrates, dragging them out of the temple, dragging them into the court. So you see, it's a str- it can be a, a forceful word in terms of its use. So John 6.44 and John 12.32, that would get my attention. John uses this verb five times in his gospel only eight times in the entire New Testament, and twice specifically it is used in terms of drawing people to himself, that would tell me it is significant. Uh, also, it's interesting if we go back into the Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9 uh, says this, verse 30, Nehemiah nine thirty. many years you bore with them, the people of Israel, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not hear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. And it's, it's interesting that this Greek word, this Greek verb is used in the Septuagint in, in uh, 9.30, Nehemiah 9.30, that God bore with them in Hebrew and, and was long-suffering. Instead, is, is bearing long with them in the sense of drawing, appealing, and they wouldn't listen. So God's drawing is not necessarily a drawing that can not be resisted. God can draw and people can resist. All right. So it can be a dragging verb, but, but Peter doesn't drag his sword out. All right. If you say, no, you drag, well, you could drag someone into court and they could resist being dragged into court. Couldn't they? All right. And you could be trying to drag Paul and Paul could fight back and pull away. So just because it's a strong word doesn't mean it is irresistible. With all respect, to my Calvinist friends. All right, uh, Tom, why was Galatians 5, 22, 23 not translated as, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. Fruit is singular, and most of us are simple-minded. We can remember love. Okay. The reason it wasn't translated like that is because no one would dream of translating it like that of the Greek. And fruit, uh, so there's fruit on the tree. You're telling me, Tom, that fruit on the tree, and obviously it's a bit, I assume a bit tongue-in-cheek in your question here, but fruit is singular. So if I talk about the fruit on the tree, I'm only talking about one apple. Boy, do you see the fruit on our apple tree? I mean, fruit is a, is a collective noun. So fruit can, can be plural. In fact, most of the time it's used in the plural. Yeah, I need you to get some fruit at the grocery store. What kind? All, all kinds of different fruit. We don't say fruits, right? So, that, so fruit in the same way here, uh, it means the fruits that are born by walking in the spirit. And, and by the way, uh, when you say, you know, most of us are simple minded, we can remember love. Well, we can also remember joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faith and gentleness, self-control. And, and even if we don't remember all of those, if we walk in the spirit in harmony with God, those things will be produced in our lives. Yes, they will. That will just be the natural outgrowth. That's the whole thing. Fruit grows naturally. So as you walk with the Lord, as you spend time with him, as you meditate on his word, as you, you drink in his presence, as you do these things, what happens? Fruit is born naturally. So with our simple minds, we can remember that just like a tree bears fruit. Oh, it's great. It just bears fruit by, by drinking, by the root system being deep and the root system drinking in nourishment the same way. We have our root system in the Lord deep, our time alone with Him in the Word and prayer and meditating on Him and fellowshipping with Him and worshiping Him as we do that. Oh, fruit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. Those things will grow naturally in us. We'll be right back. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the line of fire. You know, as we open the phones on Fridays, normally our, our phone bank is filled, our uh, screen is filled with calls from the beginning to the end. The moment uh, uh, a line opens up, someone calls in. I, I love doing that. I wish we had hours and hours and hours just to do it every single day where I can answer your questions. But on some days, for scheduling issues or to give place to folks that can't call in, we will take questions that are posted on Twitter or Facebook. I asked for specific questions about specific verses or questions about Hebrew, questions about Greek. So we're going to look at a Hebrew question. And we're going to look at a Greek question that had been posted on Twitter and then on Facebook. Uh, we had a problem with Facebook when we were posting questions. We were unable to post on the Ask Dr. Brown page. So I had to post on my personal Facebook page, which most of you don't have access to because it's, it's filled with the 5,000 person friend limit, whereas our Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page has 580,000 and, and counting. So we can take an, uh, an, an endless number of folks there. So I apologize. I couldn't get it to everyone to respond to, but it was a Facebook glitch that day. All right. Metaskipper asked this. I remember answering at least a question or two of yours in the past. Is there or is there not a plural of majesty, respect in Hebrew. I've heard some arguments that Elohim's plural forms point to the Trinity, but these arguments normally deny that Hebrew has a plural of respect, which I've heard is true elsewhere. Okay, so we've got several different issues here. The issue number one of Elohim being in the plural. 
that is not what's normally meant by plural of majesty when we talk about verbal issues or let us make man in our image. Is there such a thing as a plural of majesty? This is simply a Semitic way of referring to power or it can refer to, uh, to intensity with a plural. So the Hebrew word for compassion is rachamim, which comes from rechem, womb, but it's a plural form, rachamim, but we translated it singular with compassion. Why? Well, obviously, intensity of emotion or feeling, that would be the most logical explanation. Or, for example, panim, face, that's plural in Hebrew. Is it because of the different aspects of the face or whatever the explanation is? Elohim, plural in Hebrew. And, and many would argue in the Semitic languages as a whole, but certainly in Hebrew, Elohim, this is plural. So the God, it's, it's God's, it's a plural form, but it refers to the one true God in the context where it's speaking about him. In the same way, you have in Isaiah 19, the, the Hebrew is plural, Adonim, but the, the adjective is singular, Kasheh, God will hand you over to a cruel Lord. Well, the Hebrews, lords, yeah, but when you're speaking often of, of the one in power, so the Lord, or uh, just God and his deity, or an owner, or something like that, sometimes it's expressed in the plural, and Elohim normally means God in the plural. So that's, that's one thing. Does that point to Trinity? No, it doesn't, but it's in harmony with Trinity. It doesn't point to Trinity, but it's in harmony with God being triune. All right, that's first thing. Second thing is, is there a plural of majesty in verbal forms, right? Now say Adam, but sell man and mutenu. In in I in Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. All right. So the reference there to image and likeness that's plural our, and then let us, or when when the king he says let us let's do this. I decree that this will be read before us. So he is speaking in the plural. Yeah, that's common in the ancient Near East. You don't normally have it in verbal forms, like let us make. But yeah, that's common in, in the ancient Near East. And you could still have a king speak like that today. The decree of the king is that everyone shall come and meet with us at the court here. And, well, us, speaking of him, because he's, uh, he's bigger than one, right? So the plural of majesty, yeah, it does exist, but it doesn't necessarily explain Genesis 1, 26. And someone claimed that in Hebrew, you don't have the plural of majesty in these verbal forms, but only in nominal forms or prepositional phrases like to us or for us or we, we decree. <clears throat> so it's not so much the verbal, it's the, it's the we part. In any case, in any case, Genesis one twenty six could be the plural of deliberation. Let's do it. It's just one person talking. Let's do it. But it's deliberation. The question would be, why does it say our image and our likeness? That's, that's not deliberation. That's, that's God speaking there about his nature. So does Genesis 1.26 point to God's triunity? No, but it's in harmony with his triunity. And it could well explain why Genesis 1.26 is in the pool. It doesn't necessarily do so but it could well. So in short, yes, there is the pillar of majesty or pillar of respect. Uh, yes, Elohim a, as, as an intensive form or plural form can speak of 
God, the God, because of his power and his might and his majesty. Yes, that's absolutely true. And yes, there are certain forms in Hebrew that you would call a plural of majesty, but they don't necessarily explain verses like Genesis 1, 26. Would they explain Isaiah 6? Uh, Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Is that plural of majesty? Could be. Or is it God speaking as, as Trinity? You could argue that. Either is possible. Can't be dogmatic. Okay, let me go over to a question on Facebook from Jonathan. Based on what Luke says in Acts 21.20, so it makes reference there to Passos Murias, right? So all these myriads of people. How many Jewish believers do you think there were by the time of the events in Acts 21? Do you think Luke was using hyperbole? What do most scholars think that the population of Jewish believers was at this time? So Acts chapter 21, verse 20. Acts 21, 20. Was it hyperbole? So this would not be Luke exaggerating. This would be Luke accurately quoting what Jacob, James, says. All right, so... uh, when we arrived in Jerusalem, Luke writes, the brothers and sisters welcomed us gladly, Luke, Paul, and their entourage. On the next day, Paul went in with us to Jacob. So better known as James, but Jacob's the right way to translate the Greek. I'm reading from the TLV. All the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported to them in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his service. And when they heard, they began glorifying God. They said, so this is the, the brothers with Jacob telling Paul, you see, brother, how many myriads there are among the Jewish people who have believed, and they are all zealous for the Torah. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jewish people among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What's to be done then? No doubt they'll hear that you've come. And then they go on telling them to do this to prove that you're not teaching Jewish people to forsake Moses and tell them not to circumcise their children. And Paul was not saying to forsake Moses. He was teaching about living in light of the new and better covenant which would now build on what Moses had spoken and certainly would not stop Jews from identifying as Jews or Jews from circumcising their children, which of course goes back to Abraham. So were they exaggerating? Well, if they're exaggerating to make a point to Paul and then he then acted on that point, you would say that's ultimately deceptive. But but what does the the number actually mean when he he, he speaks of of these myriads of believers? If, If myriad... Is, does it mean thousands or does it mean tens of thousands, as some have argued? We know early on in Acts that the number of believers is already 5,000. So is it now tens of thousands at this point? All right. There are a couple of different arguments. There is the argument of historian and anthropologist Rodney Stark, and he points to Jewish population in the ancient world. And there seems to be, over a period of time, almost a disappearance of like a million people that would have been on the Jewish ranks. Now, I don't have the exact number in my head, but I believe it was even upwards of that in terms of what he said. And his explanation was, okay, you have people scattered, you have people killed by the Romans, etc. But in the Roman world, you had terrible wars, in the war of 66 to 70 and the war of 132 to 135, terrible wars, great slaughter of Jewish people. But in his mind, there's a large chunk that's missing, a large chunk that's missing. And the only way to explain that is that these Jewish people assimilated into the larger church population 
and were, were basically lost from the Jewish records or from the larger Jewish population because of their identity with these Christians, with followers of Jesus, with the church, which became predominantly Gentile, then that's where they were grouped. And hence, you've got like uh, maybe a million Jews were believing in Jesus by the end of the first century. There are some that, that put the number up at incredibly, incredibly high. Others would say at, at most, at most, if you had 10 or 20,000 at that point, it would be a lot of Jewish believers in Jesus at that point. My take, and I'm not an expert on, on the ancient demographics and all of the questions that would have to be studied and population studies and things like that, genealogical records and whatever else we had that we looked at and, and so on. I'm not an expert in that. But my understanding, having read it, having looked at it, having read some of the relevant, relevant literature, would, would be multiplied tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000 or more certainly by the end of the first century, potentially a hundred thousand or more, but it's hard. It's hard to be dogmatic about it. Were there more Jewish believers then than any time in history? I mean, the numbers are high now, but there are more Jewish people in the world than there were then, but not massive, massive difference, like 10, 20, 30 times more Jews in the world today because of all the Jewish suffering and assimilation through history. But certainly to me, at least several tens of thousands would be the indication just can't be dogmatic about it. All right, friends, remember to get our new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. We're shipping it now. Craig Keener and I together why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. When you order it, we'll send you a link so you can get the audio interview as well. God bless.